Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 16th, 2014, and my guest is Thomas Piketty, or as most Americans pronounce it, Thomas Piketty. Uh, We'll try to do our best to say it correctly. He is professor of economics at the Paris School of Economics and author of Capital in the 21st Century, the subject of this episode. Thomas, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you for inviting me. So your book, Capital in the 21st Century, is a remarkable book, and it's received a remarkable amount of attention. I don't think there is a book since Keynes's general theory that has generated as much interest. So first, I want to say congratulations. Thank you. The book's an incredible collection of data, much of it done by you with various co-authors, and it's also a series of explanations for what is in the data. I want to start with what you consider the main empirical findings. What are they? Um, Okay, well, there are really several important findings because this is, first of all, a a book about uh, the history of income and wealth distribution in over 20 countries, uh, over three centuries. So, uh, you know, it couldn't be that uh, this can be summarized with just one evolution or one mechanism. So there are many different forces, sometimes contradictory, that are going on. Uh, and I, I, I really first want to stress that the, the primary purpose of this book uh, is to put together this vast quantity of historical data that I could never have collected on my own, and that was collected with several dozen uh, scholars, uh, Tony Atkinson, Emmanuel Saez, Facundo Alvaredo, Gabriel Zuckman, uh, many uh, scholars from many countries. Uh, and, and the primary purpose of the book is really to make this material uh, accessible to to try to tell a story in plain uh, language uh, that allows uh, everybody and certainly not uh, only economists uh, to access this historical material so that people can make their own mind about the future about the explanation and you know I certainly do not claim I have the you know the ultimate explanation for for everything and, and you know, we know a little bit more than we used to, but we still know uh, far too little. So wh- one of the key patterns and one of the key evolutions that I have uh, learned about in this research is uh, the following. We, we've seen uh, in most uh, developed countries um, um, an important uh, reduction uh, in inequality uh, in the first half of the 20th century. And then uh, starting somewhere in the 1970s or 1980s, depending on the country, we've seen an important rise in uh, income and wealth inequality. And this reflects uh, really different uh, mechanisms, some that have to do with the inequality of labor income and some that have to do with the inequality of wealth. Uh, And both are important. Uh, To a large extent, what the book is trying to do is to shift the attention from the inequality of labor income to the inequality of wealth, which in the very long run might be even more important. But really, both evolutions are important and involve uh, different uh, uh, mechanisms. So the, the rise in the inequality of labor income 
which has been particularly strong uh, in the United States and, and somewhat less strong in, in Europe and, and Japan, although you also, you also find it there, uh, is usually analyzed in terms of uh, changing patterns for the supply and demand of skill, uh, the impact of globalization, competition with the uh, with emerging countries, and, and this is certainly part of the explanation. But one of the points I make in my book is that this cannot be the entire explanation because a very large part of the rise uh, in uh, labor income inequality, uh, in fact, has to do uh, with the very, very top incomes, you know, the rise of very top managerial compensation, the top 1% or sometimes even top 0.1%. Uh, earnings, uh, typically uh, executives in very large corporations, and that's difficult to explain uh, just on the basis of supply and demand for skills, because uh, it's not you know that the top one percent labor earners are a lot more educated than the next uh, few percent. Uh, so it's, if you if you really want to explain it, and and that's what we uh, that's what I do in the book using joint research with, uh, with Emmanuel Saez and Stephanie Stancheva, you, you have to look at the transformation of uh, the institution governing the pay-setting process at the very top end of large corporations. And to, to, to summarize very quickly uh, uh, our conclusion, uh, we, we feel that uh, you know, the theory of marginal productivity uh, is a bit naive, at least for this top part of the labor market. Uh, that is to say, uh, you know, when a, when, a, when a manager manages to, to, to get a pay increase from $1 million a year to $10 million a year, according to the textbook uh, model based on marginal productivity, this should be due to the fact that uh, his uh, marginal contribution to the output of his company has risen from 1 to 10. Now, this is a bit naive. It could be that in practice, Individual marginal productivities are very hard to observe and monitor, especially in a large corporation. And there is clearly a strong incentive for, for uh, top managers to try to get as much as they can. And uh, the change, very sharp change in the tax progressivity that has happened in the US since the 1970s, 1980s, has probably changed quite radically the incentives Uh, for top managers to uh, uh, try to do as much as they can to to get this pay increase. You're talking about people. You're talking about the reduction in marginal tax rates and your argument in the book is that... Right, exactly. So, yeah. Your argument in the book is that this meant that if you could get a raise, you could keep more of it than you would before. This is the opposite of what standard economic theory would predict, which is increases, excuse me, decreases in marginal tax rates should actually lower pre-tax income, but increase after tax income. But you have a different model then of, of what determines pay. Well, in, in the standard model, when you when you cut the, the marginal uh, tax rate, you know, people should react by working more, uh, being more productive, and this should raise their income. Now, this is one possible channel, but uh, what we find in the data is that there could be another channel, which is that simply you're going to bargain more aggressively for a bigger pay. So to be very concrete, uh, you know, when the, the the top income tax rate in the United States between 1930 and 1980, 
which is a very long period of time, was on average 82 percent at the at the federal level, and you had periods where it was 91 percent, periods where it was 70 percent. On average, it was 82 percent. Now, when when the top tax rate is 82 percent, you know, of course, you always want to be paid one million more, but you know, at the margin, if when you get a pay increase of one extra million dollar, you know, 82 percent is going to go straight to the treasury, so your incentives to uh, bargain very aggressively and put the right people in the right compensation committee are going to be not so strong. And, and also, you know, your shareholders, your subordinates, uh, maybe uh, will tend to tell you, well, look, uh, uh, you know, this is very costly. Uh, whereas uh, when the top tax rate goes down to 20, 30% uh, or even 40%, so you keep, uh, you know, two-thirds or 60% of the, of the extra 1 million for you, then the incentives are, are very, very, very different. Now, this, this model seems to uh, explain part of what we observe uh, in the data. Uh, and in particular, uh, you know, it's very difficult to see any uh, improvement in the performance of managers uh, who are getting $10 million uh, instead of $1 million. You know, when we, we, we've put together a database with all the Uh, publicly traded companies in North America, Europe, Japan, trying to compare the companies that are paying their managers uh, 10 million instead of one. And you know, it's very difficult to see in the data any, any, uh, any, um, any extra performance. And, and if anything, what you see uh, is that the elasticity of top managerial pay Uh, with respect to uh, to uh, to profits of the company is actually higher for the variations in profits that have nothing to do with individual performance. So, for instance, when you have industry-wide changes in profits or shocks to uh, terms of trade or you know other macro parameters that affect the profitability of your business, then the the, the, the elasticity of the top managerial pay is even higher. So, which really suggests that. Basically, when you have uh, more cash on the table, you, you tend to you tend to take it, uh, particularly in countries and time periods where the tax rate is, is lower. So Stephen, anyway, that's, Stephen, that's one of the one of the mechanisms uh, no, that can about, account for this. Yeah. Let me ask you about that. Stephen Kaplan, who was a guest on Econ Talk a while back, in his work with Joshua Rao on the top one percent, uh, they argue that because the gains are very similar in the top 1% across sectors so that the corporate sector does get higher pay, but so do other the non-corporate sector, lawyers, uh, athletes, and others in the top 1% have similar increases that it's hard to, be, to believe that it's corporate governance, the failure of corporate governance to, to bargain appropriately with, with top managers. What do you think of their work? Well, I, I think the, the, the top managers are, in fact, a much, much bigger fraction of the top 1% and top 0.1% that, uh, than athletes and, uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, movie stars and, and such professions. So, in fact, no, I, I do believe that most of the action comes from uh, uh, top executives in large corporations. I think one reason why Kaplan uh, and, and his co-sources don't, don't it that way is that they only count, uh, you know, the top five uh, earners in large corporations. But in large corporations, it's actually a lot more than five people uh, in each corporation that are making uh, that are making it to the top one percent. 
or even to the top 0.1 percent. So, so they, actually, they don't have the data because they only use uh, released, uh, you know, publicly released uh, data on top five earners in each corporation. But if you use the tax return file, where you have the entire universe of uh, income earners and wage earners in the U.S., then in fact you you can see that uh, that uh, top executive uh, broadly defined, you know, all those that that make, you know, if you want to be to the top one percent, you need to make more than uh, you know. 400 or 500,000 dollars if you want to make it to the top 0.1, uh, you know, 1 million, 1.5 million, you know, depending on which year you look at. But if you take such thresholds, then you will see that uh, top executives in large corporations are indeed driving the, 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 the process. Um, I think right. one limitation, another limitation in the data they're using is that they basically only look at the US. So, uh, and, and, you know, I think the US is, uh, is you know, it's a very interesting country, of course, but uh, I think the, the rest of the world is interesting also. And uh, it's, in order to understand what are the true reasons uh, for what we observe, I think uh, that the cross-country perspective is important because it's it's very difficult to explain. Uh, you know, one reason why it's so difficult to explain the, the data simply with a skill-based uh, or talent-based story is that it's it's hard to understand why it would uh, happen so much uh, in the U.S. and much less in uh, Germany or Japan or, or Sweden. Or, well, one uh, explanation so, one explanation would be that combined with globalization, uh, U.S. corporations tend to be larger, and there has there have been studies that find that there's a correlation between compensation and size of firm. Well, no. If you if you look at international data and, and you control for size, you know that that's uh, you still have the main part uh, is left unexplained. So the main part of the extra uh, inequality that you find in the U.S. is left unexplained. So this is what we do uh, in a paper with Emmanuel Saez and Stephanie Stancheva that was published uh, in the American Economic Journal uh, earlier this year in 2014. And and as far as I know, this is the first paper you know taking a cross country perspective on, on top pay setting. And we do have control for firm size. We do have control for industry. So, you know, it's not that you have bigger companies in the U.S. It's not that you have more financial companies in the U.S. or in the U.K. that that's going to be enough to explain the particularly strong rise uh, in inequality uh, in those two countries, particularly in the U.S. We, we put this control in the, in, the, in the regression. And what we find is that, you know, what matters much more uh, is the, the change in the in the in the top tax rate uh, uh, over time in these different uh, uh, countries? But you know, I, I don't. I think this cross-country analysis is more complete that, uh, than other uh, analysis of this sort. But you know, I certainly do not claim that this is the final word. And, oh. and, and I, I think you know the supply and demand for skills explanation, globalization explanation also matters. You know, I think we don't have to, to choose between the two. I think the two are important. I, I just think that for the very top end, uh, institutional forces are probably uh, even more important. Well, we'll come back to this because I want to come back to the United States in particular and the labor inequality. But I want to make sure we get to the wealth inequality issues. You write that R greater than G is the central contradiction of capitalism. Uh, explain what R and G are and why their relative size is important, because that's really one of the central themes of the book that runs through the entire entire book. Right. So my book is is, is trying, as I say, to shift attention from rising uh, 
uh, inequality of labor income to rising wealth inequality. And indeed, uh, in order to analyze the long-run evolution of wealth concentration, uh, uh, there is one central force that I emphasize, which is uh, the, the tendency of the rate of return to capital to exceed the economy's growth rate. So what are we talking about? So R is the rate of return on capital which is, uh, you know, how much, uh, how, what is the return that you get during one year on your uh, uh, capital investment? So, if, you know, the easiest form of, of uh, capital holding will be, you know, imagine you own a, an apartment uh, or house worth one uh, million dollars. Uh, what's going to be the, the rental value uh, during one year? So if the rental value is uh, $40,000 um, during a year, then that will be a return of 4%. Now, uh, when you invest uh, your money on the stock market, and which is typically a more risky investment than housing, uh, the return in the long run is typically bigger than that. You know, it could be 6%, 7%. Uh, so, of course, it's very volatile across assets. It's not the same for the different assets, but typically it can be uh, 4%, 5%, or more for more risky uh, investment. Uh, the growth rate of the economy... It's a completely different uh, concept. The growth rate of the economy in the long run uh, reflects uh, uh, first the growth rate of population, so how much population is increasing, and next the growth rate of productivity, so this is the growth rate of per capita GDP, how much uh, the output per uh, inhabitant is rising due to the rise of, of, uh, of productivity, uh, technical knowledge. So the, the growth rate of the economy um, uh, is determined both by demographic forces, by innovation, uh, and of course these forces have, have not much to do with the forces that determine the rate of return to capital, which are primarily uh, how useful capital is for production, uh, and, and there's really no reason why R&G should be, should be equal. And in practice, what we observe, and we can talk a lot more about why we observe this, is that in the long run, uh, there is a tendency for R to exceed G, which means something very concrete. So let's take an example. Assume R is 5% per year and G is 1%. What does this mean? Well, this means that if you own a lot of wealth to begin with, then you can consume uh, four-fifths of the return to your capital, and you can reinvest only uh, one-fifth of the return, so 20%, and this will be enough to ensure that your wealth will rise at the same speed as the size of the economy. So this is a very nice situation you know, for, for initial owners of wealth in the sense that you can sustain uh, uh, high living standards, reinvest only a small part uh, uh, of your income and, and, and still your, your wealth and the wealth of your family, of your successors can rise as much. Now, that does not imply that inequality will rise to infinity because people indeed will typically uh, uh, consume a, a big part of the return to their wealth. Uh, Sometimes they will give always it away. Be Sure. So there will always be some mobility in wealth uh, because some people give it away. Some people have many children. Some people have, have too few children. Some people die too late. Some people die too soon. Some people make uh, crazy investments. Some people uh, make very good investments. So, you know, you will always have some mobility. But uh, other things equal, a bigger gap between R and G will lead to an equilibrium distribution of wealth uh, that is more unequal 
and that will involve more reproduction over time of inequality. Okay, so the bigger R minus G, the more inequality, the less mobility. And of course, there are many other forces that are important. You know, the saving behavior, are you going to give it away? The demographic behavior, do the rich have more children than the poor? Uh, how the financial markets operate? So for instance, uh, financial deregulation in recent decades has probably increased the inequality in rate of return for people with different wealth levels you know, from the data we have and that I analyze in the book, for instance, for large university endowments, you know, it looks as if the bigger your endowments, the more you are able to access to, to uh, sophisticated financial product, uh, financial derivatives, etc., that give you sometimes a much bigger return than, you know, the typical uh, middle class family that is sometimes getting, uh, you know, pretty uh, lousy uh, return. So, so, you know, the inequality in return around the average return uh, is also going to play a big role. But taking all of these other factors as given, a bigger gap between the average rate of return and the economy's growth rate uh, will tend to, to, to lead to higher inequality. And what I argue in the book and, and what I have found uh, using historical data is that this is probably one of the key forces explaining why historically uh, wealth concentration has been so large uh, in most uh, societies and most civilizations. Actually, until World War I, if you take in particular most European countries, uh, uh, you have very, very large concentration of wealth well until World War I. And what, what I argue uh, using uh, uh, the historical materials that I found, especially for France and Britain, is that the, the, the fact that the, historically, you know, the fact that the, the rate of return was bigger than the growth rate was pretty obvious during most of human history simply because the growth rate was close to zero. So uh, during most, uh, until the industrial revolution, the, the population was uh, almost uh, stationary. Productivity was rising very, very, very slowly. So the total growth rate of GDP uh, was no less than 0.1 or 0.2 percent per year. Uh, so of course the rate of return was a lot larger than that. You know, the typical rental value to to land or to buildings will be at least three percent and generally four or five percent. So so that's a lot bigger than 0.1 percent. And now with the industrial revolution in the 19th century, you have of course a rise of the growth rate. But uh, at the same time, the rate of return to capital is also rising somewhat because you have new investment opportunities, new forms of capital accumulation. So maybe, you know, growth rate goes from zero to one percent in per capita terms. And the, the, the rate of return goes from four or five to five, six, sometimes seven percent. So at the end of the day, the gap between the two is not very strongly affected. And it's important to realize that the the growth rate in the very long run is typically uh, not five uh, percent. You know, the only time in history where you observe a growth rate of five percent or above five percent are uh, countries that are catching up with other countries. So typically, uh, you know, Germany or Japan or France in the post-war period uh, are growing uh, uh, faster than five percent per year. But this is just because in 1945, you know, these countries have a very low uh, GDP, so they had to catch up. Uh, in particular, with the U.S. Or today, China is, is catching.
catching up with the rest of the world, so they have very fast growth rate. But when you are at the uh, world technological frontier, there's no example of a country where uh, per capita uh, GDP growth is higher than, you know, maybe 1.5 percent. You know, so some people think it's even less than that in the very long run. In any case, uh, th there are reasons to believe that uh, uh, we might uh, again uh, have, uh, uh, you know, in the 21st century, this, uh, this uh, inequality, at least in developed countries and maybe also in, uh, in emerging countries when they will have uh, completed their catch-up process, uh, we will have this inequality uh, between R&G together with the, the, the financial deregulation process that has increased inequality in R, uh, this is one of the mechanisms that can uh, contribute to explain uh, uh, relatively uh, high and rising inequality of wealth. Okay, so let me uh, raise some issues I think are relevant. Now, first, it's, it's clearly true that if I save all my income, and I don't eat anything, and I don't give any of it away, and I have lots of children, <laughs> and I'm no, and I have one child. Say that 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 one child will will have gotten an enormous extra benefit from the fact that that the the parent can invest the money at, at R. That that child will have an advantage over a, a wage earner who doesn't have any access to capital. It seems to me that though that in the 20th century, in the 20th century, and some a little bit in the 21st, first there's an increased access to capital of by the general public in the form of uh, retirement plans and, and stock put programs and, and low-priced uh, opportunities to invest in equity, and particularly index mutual funds. And um, the real question, though, is why should I care? At, tell me, let's talk philosophically. Uh, and by the way, the R you're talking about is, is risky, of course, the average rate. So it's not always true that the rich are able to just get this risk-free rate. It's not risk-free. But let's talk philosophically for a minute. Why should I? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are wealthier than I am. A lot of them didn't earn it. Um, uh, Sam Walton, who founded Walmart, his four of his either relatives or descendants are the in the top ten of the Forbes 400. They're four of the richest of the ten richest uh, Americans uh, right now. Uh, Steve Jobs or his descendants, they're doing better than I am. Uh, they make a lot more. They have a lot more access to money than I do. Why? And there are people with less than I have. Uh, why should I be concerned about that? In particular, do you see any role for the accumulation of capital to help people other than those who hold it? Is there any worry that, that your interest in reducing capital concentration could affect uh, the growth rate? Because you don't seem to suggest any connection between the two. So there's a lot of questions there. Sorry. Uh, take a shot at it. Mm. Oh yes, you've said so much. You know, I don't know where to start. But let let me let me make clear that you know I I, I love capital accumulation and I certainly don't want to reduce capital accumulation. Uh, the problem is the, is the concentration. Okay, but uh, so so let let me make very clear that inequality in itself is of course not a problem. You know, inequality can actually be useful for for growth up to a point. The, the problem is when inequality uh, of wealth and concentration of wealth uh, gets too extreme, uh, it doesn't, you know, it is not useful anymore for growth. And it can even become bad because it leads to high perpetuation 
of inequality over time, so it can reduce social mobility, and it can also be bad for the for the working of our democratic uh, institutions. So where is the tipping point? Where 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 when is it that inequality becomes excessive? Well, I'm I'm sorry to tell you that I don't have a mathematical formula for that, and all I have, Mr. and Honest. all we have, all we have. Uh, collectively is historical evidence. And all I do in my work, you know, is to try to put together a lot of historical evidence to see what we can learn about the location of the tipping point. So what can we learn about the location of the tipping point? Uh, let me get, tell you a, a couple of things we can learn. First of all, you know, the kind of extreme concentration of wealth that we had in every uh, European country until World War One. I think was not useful. It was excessive. So at that time, and you know, there was a lot more concentration than what we have today in Europe, and even more than what we have today in the US. Uh, the, basically, there was almost no middle class. So the 90% of the wealth would belong to the top 10%. Now, was this useful for growth? Uh, there's very little evidence for, for this claim. Uh, if you look at the evidence we have, you know, you have a huge reduction in concentration uh, following World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two, also following the public policies, uh, universal education, the welfare state, progressive taxation that were adopted following these shocks. Now, was this bad for growth? No, this was not bad for growth. If anything, growth uh, in the post-war period has been higher than what it has ever been. And, you know, even today, although it is not great, it is it is uh, of the same order of magnitude or actually better than what we had in the 19th century, early 20th century. And the reason is simply that, uh, you know, the middle class, the fact that we have a significant share of wealth that does not belong to the top 10% and that belongs to a broad middle class that have access to wealth is certainly not bad for growth. So inequality, you know, above a certain point is just not not useful anymore. So I think, you know, we don't want to return to this kind of extreme uh, form of inequality. I think at some, you know, at some abstract philosophical level, everybody agrees that inequality is acceptable as long as it is uh, in the common interest, as long as it benefits uh, the whole of society through more innovation, more growth. Now, uh, right now, uh, you know, if you look at the, uh, at, the, at the data we have on wealth dynamics, one uh, striking uh, finding that I, that I put forward in my, in my book is that, uh, uh, you know, first, I think what we need is, you know, we need more transparency about wealth. You know, we know too little about wealth dynamics. And, you know, one of the reasons why I am in favor of, uh, of a wealth tax, and we can talk more about that, is that this will produce uh, more uh, transparency, more data on wealth dynamics. But for now, we need to do with what we have, and what we have are typically uh, uh, Forbes ranking of wealth uh, in the US or similar rankings uh, in the rest of the world. Now, if you look at this data, uh, what you what you find is the following: you know, over the past 30 years, you know, if you start in 1987, which is when Forbes uh, started producing their global wealth ranking, and you go until 2013. Uh, what you find is that the top wealth holders, so usually what people do is just to say, okay, you have more and more billionaires in the world, you know, which is, which in a growing world economy is not too surprising. So what I do is a little bit more sophisticated. You, you take a fixed fraction of the world population, uh, and, and, and you have a rising world population, but you take a fixed percentage at the very top, and you look at the evolution of the average wealth of this group, 
and you compare to average growth of the world economy. So, of course, this group, as you mentioned very rightly, uh, is not made of the same people. You know, there's a lot of mobility. You know, the world billionaires of 1987 and those of 2013 are not the same. But still, uh, it's interesting to look at how the average wealth of this group is changing because if we were in an equilibrium of the world distribution of wealth, you know, in principle, uh, okay, you would have some mobility, some people go down, some people go up, but on average, the average wealth of this group should be rising approximately at the same speed as the size of the world economy. Uh, yeah, I'm not saying it should rise exactly at the same speed, but it should be comparable uh, rate of growth. Now, this is not at all what you observe. So according to the data we have uh, from, from Forbes uh, Global Wealth Ranking, these very top groups have been rising at 6-7% per year over this period. Now, world GDP uh, has been rising at 3-3.2% at per year over this period, but in fact, half of it is due to population. So if you take per capita income at the world level and per capita wealth at the world level, it has been rising at 1.5 to 2 percent per year. So in other words, the top is rising three to four times uh, faster uh, than the average. Now, uh, of course, this cannot continue forever. And I'm not saying this will continue forever. You can see that, you know, if it was to continue forever, if the top was to rise three to four times faster than the size of the world economy forever, then, uh, you know, 30 years from now, you would have close to uh, 100% of world wealth to a little group of billionaires. And, and, and you know, some of them are, are US billionaires. Some of them are Russian oligarchs. Some of them are, you know, lots some of, of people. <laughs> and, you know, that, you know, 100% will be too much. So you, I think you agree with me that this cannot continue forever. And actually, this will not continue forever. Oh, no, no. The, the question... Well, you agree that you cannot have forever the top rising three or four times faster than the average. Even if you have mobility, even if these are not the same people, from a purely logical perspective, this cannot continue forever. Right, but the, you, the real, you agree with that. But the question is, what's the underlying causal mechanism? And just to take, let's take two examples, one of which uh, is very mundane and one of which is not mundane. So the Waltons, who we talked about before, who were not there in 1987, but are there now, they changed retailing in the United States and probably in the world, and they made it easier. They figured out ways to deal with inventory and to control costs using technology. Sure, sure. You're right. I, I made, agree with you. They made millions yeah. of people better off, and they got richer being in the top 1% uh, you than know, people I, before I exactly them. agree with you. There's no problem with that. But still, I'm, so I'm they still made the world the a better, question again. They made the world and a better can place. I, can, I ask you a, can I ask you a question? But do you agree okay, that I, they I, made I, the world a better place? <laughs> Oh yeah, of course, okay. of course, a better, yeah, much better place. And and Bill Gates as well. And you know, you have lots of entrepreneurs in the world which are extremely useful. Of course, who, who could deny that? But but still, even if if uh, you know these people were all different entrepreneurs each year, and that are very useful for the world, do you agree that the average wealth of the top cannot go up forever, four times faster than the size of the world economy? I don't think that's the relevant question. The relevant question is... No, no, no is, but look, look, it's a very simple, logical question. And, and of course, so, so let me try well, to I think answer. They can get, they can, answer. Tell what, they can get an ever-increasing share. The fundamental question is, what's the value to the rest of us as they get right, an ever-increasing share? And if their increasing share is coming from an increase in technology and globalization, which is limited, no, that will slow no, okay, down. But, uh, that will slow down. The globalization will, will slow down. So the ability to capture large amounts of 
of wealth yeah. relative no, to the past. You know, I, I think you are, you are remarkably uh, optimistic about natural forces, and this is, uh, this is great. You know, I, I, I love market forces as well, but I think at some point it's important to look at the numbers. And when, uh, you know, a group is growing three to four times faster than the average, just simple computation, simple logical computation will show you that in 30, 40 years, you know, the share of national wealth uh, going to a very tiny group can can get enormously high. So let, let's be again but concrete about what are the wealth shares. No, let, let's let, let's be very concrete. So let's take the US. Okay, in the US right now, uh, you know the the bottom fifty percent of the population owns about two percent of national wealth, and the next forty percent. Uh, uh, owns about uh, 20-22% of national wealth. They, 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 and this group, you know, the, the middle 40%, the people who are not in the bottom 50 and who are not in the top 10, they used to own 25-30% to 30 of national wealth and, and this has been going down in recent decades as was shown by a recent study by Saez and Zuckman and now this is closer to 20-22%. Now, how much should it be? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know. But the view that we need the middle class share to go down and down and down and that this is not a problem as, as long as uh, you know you have positive growth i think it's excessive you know i think we of course we need entrepreneur and you know i'm not saying look if it was perfect equality the bottom 50% should own 50% and the next 40% should own 40 I, I am not saying that we should have this at all i'm just saying that when you have 2% for the bottom 50 and 22 for the next 40, you know, the view that we cannot do better than that, otherwise uh, you won't have entrepreneur anymore, you won't have growth anymore, is, is very ideological. I don't dispute and that. And also, it's not, it's not at all consistent uh, with, with, uh, with historical evidence we have, which is that some inequality is useful for growth. Look, you know, the problem is that the growth performance... Uh, in recent decades uh, of the of the uh, U.S. economy and, and marginally of developed countries, uh, has not been uh, particularly uh, good. You know, if you look at per capita GDP uh, in the U.S. between 1980 and 2010, you have 1.5%. So, you know, if it was a 5% growth rate, maybe it would be worse having, uh, you know, a declining middle class share. But if you have a 1.5% growth rate and the share uh, going to the middle class and the bottom is, is reduced, then, you know, is this a good deal? I'm, uh, I'm, only saying, the best way? I'm only saying it's misleading to look at the share because I partly care, mostly care actually, about whether the well-being of people is increasing and not their particular share of, of the pie. The pie is getting Well, I bigger. think a solid middle class, you know, is important for the economy and for the democracy. You know, I, I think the society, uh, uh, European societies, again, in the 19th century, it was less extreme in the U.S. at that time because of a growing population, new immigrants, so you had, you had, had less of a, a sort of a big accumulation of, of family wealth for decades and decades. So it was less extreme in the U.S. But, but speaking from, from Europe, uh, I can tell you that, you know, the kind of extreme concentration of wealth that you had in Europe until World War One. Uh, you know, it's it's not good. Uh, it's not useful for the economy when it is so extreme. Uh, I agree. It leads to perpetuation over time of inequalities, and and it's not good for democracy. You know, I think a middle class having access to wealth and 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 you know showing that this is not contradictory with uh, economic efficiency. You know, that's important for for our society in general. I don't disagree with any of that. 
Well, maybe no, I agree with most of that. I think it's perfectly legitimate to argue what I've tried to argue and then still believe that we should have a large tax. I'm not in favor of it, but I understand the point about incentives. May not, the effects may be small. I'm just trying to get at the mechanics because I think it matters a lot for why inequality has risen. So, for example, if somebody has gotten wealthy because they've been able to be bailed out using my tax dollars, then I would resent that. But if somebody is wealthy mm-hmm. because they've created something marvelous, I don't resent it. And I says, my argument, my argument is, is that when we look at the Forbes 400 or the top 1%, many of the people in there, their incomes have – their wealth has, has risen at a greater rate than the economy as a whole, not because they're exploiting people, not because of corporate governance, but because of an increase in globalization that allows people to capture – make more people happy, make more people – to provide more value. My favorite example is, is, is sports. Lionel Messi mm. makes about three times – the great soccer player, the great footballer makes about three times what Pele made at his best earning year uh, 40 years ago. That's not because Messi is a better soccer player. He's not. Pele, I think, is probably a better soccer player. But the, he can – Messi reaches more people because of the internet, because of technology and globalization. You can still argue that he doesn't need $65 million a year and you should tax him at – high tax rates. But I think as economists, we should be careful about what the causal mechanism is. It matters a lot. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is why my book is long, because I talk a lot about <laughs> this mechanism. And, and you know, I, I talk a lot about uh, entrepreneurs. And, and, of course, uh, there is a lot of entrepreneurial wealth around. But uh, my, my point is certainly not to deny this. My, my point is uh, twofold. First, uh, uh, you know, even if it was 100% entrepreneurial wealth, you don't want forever uh, to have the top uh, growing uh, four times faster than the average, even if it was ex- a mobility, complete mobility from one year to the other, you know, it's just, it cannot continue forever. Otherwise, the share of middle class in national risk goes to zero percent, and, you know, zero percent is really very small. So I, I think that would, be t- that would be too much. And point number two is that uh, when you actually look at the dynamics of, of top wealth holders, you know, it's really a mixture of, of uh, you know, you, you have uh, you have entrepreneurs, but you also have sons of entrepreneurs. You also have ex-entrepreneurs who don't work anymore, uh, but their wealth is, uh, is rising uh, as fast and sometimes faster than when they were actually uh, working. Uh, you, you have, you know, it's a very complicated dynamics. And also, you know, be careful with the, actually with the Forbes ranking, which probably are, even underestimating the, the rise of top wealth holders and, 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 you know, they have a, a lot of problem counting for inherited, diversified uh, uh, portfolios. You know, it's a lot easier to spot uh, people who have created uh, their own company and who actually want to be in the ranking because usually they are quite proud of it and maybe rightly so, uh, and, and to spot the people, uh, you know, who just inherited from the wealth. And so I think, you know, this data source is very biased uh, in the direction of entrepreneurial wealth. But, you know, even if you, if you take it as, uh, as perfect data, you will see that, you know, you have a lot of inherited wealth. You have, a, well, you know, look, it's, I give this example in the book, which is quite striking. You know, the, the richest person in, in France and actually one of the richest in Europe is Liliane Betancourt. Actually, her father was a great entrepreneur. Eugène Schuller founded L'Oréal, who is the number one cosmetics in the world. You know, they are doing lots of fancy products to have a nice hair. And, you know, this is very useful. This has improved the world Pleasant. welfare by a lot. Nice. Uh, the, the, only, the only problem is that Eugène Schuller uh, created L'Oréal uh, in 1909. 
and he died in the 1950s and and you know she has uh, never worked and you know what's interesting is that her uh, fortune you know between uh, her wealth between 1990 and 2010 has increased uh, exactly as much as the one of bill gates you know she has gone uh, uh, from 5 to 30 billion dollars when bill gates has gone from uh, like 10 to 60 you know it's exactly in the same proportion and you know in a way this is sad because, of course, we would all love, uh, you know, Bill Gates' wealth to increase faster than that of Lilian. You know, look, why would I, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, I'm just trying to look at the data. And when you look at the data, you would see that the dynamics of wealth accumulation are not only about entrepreneurs and merit. And it's always a complicated mixture. And, uh, you know, you, are, you have oligarchs who are uh, seated on a big pile of oil, which, uh, you know, I don't know uh, how much uh, of it is their labor and, and talent, but, you know, some of it is certainly uh, direct appropriation. And once they are seated on this pile of wealth, you know, the rate of return that they are getting by paying tons of people to make the right investment with their portfolio can be uh, quite impressive. So I think we need, we need to look at these dynamics in a, you know, in an open manner. And, you know, when Warren Buffett says, uh, okay, uh, I should not be paying less tax uh, than my secretary, uh, you know, I think he has a valid point. And I think the, the issue that, uh, you know, the idea that we are going to solve this problem only by letting these people uh, decide how much uh, they want to give individually uh, is a bit uh, naive. You know, I, I, I believe a lot in, in charitable giving, but I think, you know, we also need collective rules and laws in order to determine how uh, each one of us is contributing to, uh, to uh, tax revenue and, and the common good. Well, the share contributed by the wealthy is in the United States is, is relatively high. You could argue it should be higher. Uh, as you would point out, I don't really have a model to, to know what that amount would be. But even when you – the real question for me is, is the size of government. If, if, it, if there's a reason for it to be larger, if the money can be spent better by the government, that would be one thing. And against the, again, the other question is what should be the, the ideal distribution of the tax burden. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the middle class because my real point about the Forbes 400 or wealthy entrepreneurs is that it is their contributions, their innovations that have made our lives better. And that's a good thing. And the fact that their income is growing faster, their wealth is growing faster than the average is a sign about just how much more they have created for – they've created wealth. They haven't expropriated it. So in your world, the change in the middle class, which you talk about quite a bit in the book, what explains the growth in the middle class in that, that 1950 to 1980 period or the 1914 to 1980 period? Huh, that's, a, that's an interesting and, and complicated question. You know, I, I think in, um, in, uh, in, in a number of countries, uh, the, the wars uh, in, induced uh, very large uh, shocks to, uh, to top wealth holders. And uh, even, you know, in the U.S., even though there was no uh, destruction on U.S. soil, you know, the Great Depression was a major uh, shock to, to top wealth holders. So, you know, these shocks and, and destruction of very top wealth holdings are part of the explanation. Now, another part of the explanation are the institutions, the policies that were how, put how in do, place. How do average people get wealthy or better off by rich people doing badly? What happened there? What's the mechanism? Oh, the simplest mechanism is that, you know, if, if you have a, a destruction of wealth, the rate of return to wealth is going to increase. And, and you know, this creates space for accumulation uh, from people who start from, uh, from, uh, from, from, 
less wealth or zero wealth and but who have a labor income that they can invest. So I think, you know, there was a rise of new Uh, uh, managerial elites and new groups of, of uh, wealth accumulators in the post-World War II area, uh, partly uh, both in Europe and in the United States, because some of the former elites, uh, uh, you know, had, had lost their, uh, their, uh, their position. The, the other part of the explanation is the very fast growth rate of the post-war period, which allows um, uh, labor income earners to accumulate, you know, it's easier to, to catch up with, uh, with, uh, with uh, higher wealth holders when you, uh, when you have a higher growth rate. So this is the R versus G logic. You know, when you have, you know, in the post-war period, if you take uh, uh, in Germany or France or Japan, you have 5% growth rate per year. So, you know, wealth accumulated in the past is less important and the new wealth out of new savings uh, is, uh, is a lot more, uh, lot more important. So high growth is, is part of it. And also a, a tax system uh, that has become more progressive as compared to the pre-World War I period uh, implies that there is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the tax system is eating less hard uh, the, the middle class and the bottom groups and harder the highest group, which again contributes to a, a more wealth mobility and more accumulation of wealth for the, the middle and the bottom relative to the concentration uh, at, at the top. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that... Uh, You know, in the recent period, uh, the growth rate, uh, both in the U.S. and in Europe, you know, in the past 20 or 30 years, has not been terribly good. Uh, it, it has actually been, you know, quite uh, mediocre. Uh, so, you know, if the, uh, you know, if the, if the top wealth holders are rising uh, three, four times faster than the average, uh, you know, if this had been happening forever, you know, of course, we would have a very different uh, distribution of wealth than we have today. So when you say, you know, this is the condition for having growth, you know, my reaction is, uh, well, okay, but uh, except that growth has not been very good. And we've had period in the past where growth was, if anything, better without Uh, the top rising uh, three times faster than the average. So you can see that, you know, this is not the only possible equilibrium. I think this depends on a number of uh, policy choices. This also depends on circumstances like, you know, war, the baby boom, which, you know, you cannot easily uh, affect or actually you don't want to affect. But this also depends on policy choices, you know, the level of tax progressivity, So the, 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 you know, the period of time when you had more tax progressivity were also period of time with reduced inequality and if anything higher growth than what we have today. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, uh, you know, one, one policy uh, dimension that can, uh, that can play a role. I think financial deregulation Uh, as also, as I said earlier, uh, increased, uh, 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 has contributed to the rising inequality, both because of very large bonuses uh, in, in the financial sector uh, for, uh, you know, a, be a benefit to the real economy that has not been always uh, very clear, and also because uh, uh, financial uh, deregulation has, has probably contributed to uh, actually rising uh, inequality in access to uh, high-yield uh, investment. Yeah. One thing, and, and one so, thing we... so these kind of institutional rules uh, do matter a lot for uh, inequality dynamics. One thing we agree on is that uh, it's not just deregulation of financial markets, but also government coddling and subsidizing of investors has certainly artificially boosted the share of the top 
1%, which I'm very opposed to. And uh, it's gotten worse in the last five years than it, than it was before. One example you give in the book is increases in the minimum wage. You're talking about different policy examples. So you point out that in France, the minimum wage has risen steadily since 1970 in real terms, and it's been flat or falling in the United States. But one of the things that I worry about is I think that's a very bad way to reduce inequality. It, uh, we know that in France, the unemployment rate among the least educated people has risen dramatically over that time period. So the reduction in inequality that that you uh, champion because of the French policy may simply be because people have dropped out of the labor force and aren't able to be observed in the data. Do you worry about that? Yeah, sure. You know, it's all a matter of proportion. And, you know, I don't champion uh, any any country. You know, I, I, I love uh, all countries. Uh, there's a lot to learn from every national experience. And, you know, I'm not here to defend uh, any particular country or any particular policy. I, I think it's all a matter of proportion. You know, it's like for progressive taxation. You know, the minimum wage uh, can be um, can be useful. But, of course, if you increase it too much, uh, then it's going to create unemployment. So it's all a matter of proportion. What I find striking in the U.S. case is that the purchasing value of the minimum wage is now, uh, at the federal level, is now smaller than what it was in the 1960s, which is 50 years ago. And at that time, there was actually less unemployment than what you have uh, today. And, and this is quite striking. You know, if during half a century, uh, you cannot increase at all the minimum wage, at least you would expect that this is because this allows you to have a job for everyone. But in fact, no, you had uh, you had more unemployment today than 50 years ago. So, so what what are we doing exactly? Maybe, uh, you know, I think we could increase the minimum wage in the U.S. Uh, at least by some amount. Now, I also agree system. with you. I, I, I also agree with you that this is not, you cannot do that too much. So in, at the end of the day, you know, the main policy to reduce inequality is not, progressive taxation, it's not the minimum wage, it's really education. It's really investing in skills, investing in schools. And, you know, this is what I say from page one uh, in my book. You know, from page one in my book, I make very clear that the primary mechanism to reduce inequality in the long run uh, is the diffusion of knowledge, the diffusion of skills, the diffusion uh, of, of higher productivity. This is what can explain uh, a convergence uh, at the international level with the uh, emerging countries catching up with, with more developed countries. And this can also lead to a reduction of inequality within countries, assuming we have educational institutions that are sufficiently inclusive. And, and from that viewpoint, what I find particularly uh, puzzling in the, in the recent evolution, and in particular in the US, is that if you look uh, at the average uh, income of the parents of Harvard uh, undergraduate students, you know, this corresponds to the average income of the top 2% of the US distribution of family income. So, this doesn't mean that you have no student below the top two, but this means that you have very few students below the top two and that those who come from the top two percent are sufficiently high up in the top two percent so that the overall average, you know, when you put the students below the top two percent, those within the top two, is as if you were to pick at random your students uh, just from the top 2% of the family distribution. Now, I think this is quite far from the meritocratic ideal 
that we all have in mind, I believe. And, you know, I think this is a, a major challenge uh, for, for the U.S. and also for every country. Let, let me say very clearly that uh, I'm, I'm certainly not going to tell you that the French university system is the uh, is, uh, is, uh, system to follow. <laughs> let me be very clear about that. So, you know, I think the U.S. has been very good at producing very efficient top universities, but has been less good at promoting uh, equal access to uh, higher education and, you know, the average quality and, the, you know, the bottom 50% of the U.S. population uh, does not quite have the, the high quality training that one might hope. Uh, uh, but, you know, I think no country in the world, certainly not in France or nowhere in Europe or Japan, has found the, the perfect system to combine uh, uh, efficiency with uh, uh, equality of access to higher education. So I think, you know, this is a major challenge for every country and there's a lot to learn from looking at this comparative data. Uh, I think every country, including France and the U.S., often pretends to be more meritocratic than they really are. And, you know, I think, you know, people have, uh, you know, sometimes just don't look at the data. And again, you know, this is uh, uh, as bad or sometimes worse in France than in the U.S. So, I mean, I'm not trying to say... Uh, well, the U.S. Uh, has, has, you know, the U.S. has a very large public university system, but it, studies have shown that it tends to benefit high-income people as well. So that's a subsidy that is ultimately, I think, uh, very misplaced. Uh, we also have a very poor education system before college, which I think has handicapped um, low-income people from low-income households. But we're almost out of time. I want to raise a couple of issues about the American data and get your response. One of the things you uh, ignore and everybody ignores when they look at the change in the share going to the top 1% or top 10%, say, between 1980 and the present, where it starts to rise very dramatically in, in your data, are two things that I'd like to hear you react to. One is demographics have changed dramatically over that time period. There's an enormous increase in the divorce rate that begins in the 70s and continues through the 80s. As a result, the number of households rises much more quickly than population – and since the divorce rate is higher among low-income individual, low-income households than high-income households, you're going to get a rising share to the top 1% or top 10% simply for that demographic reason. Similarly, changes in tax laws encourage people to take income in the form of personal income rather than corporate income starting in 1986. So I, I, when I look at your data – uh, the trend, although look, it looks, quote, frightening because of the increasing share, some of that is a statistical artifact. Do you agree? No, I disagree with, with, uh, with this uh, statement because, in fact, uh, you know, uh, if anything, I think top managers are getting even more uh, non-taxable perks like, you know, fancy jet or big offices or fancy cars or, uh, you know, beautiful hotels and restaurants today than what they did in the 1960s or 1970s. So, you know, the view that there was just as much inequality in the 60s than you have today, but that people were getting it through uh, fancy cars, whereas at least today they are just getting cash, but they, are getting, they, they have become very virtuous uh, regarding uh, non-taxable perks and, uh, you know, fancy jets. I think this is just wrong. Uh, you know, I'm I think uh, if anything, this, this seems to be complementary. This seems to be complementary. You know, in the long run, uh, I think, uh, you know, you see an increase both in cash compensation and in non-cash uh, perks and benefits. 
So it's not it's not non-cash. Anything, it's not non-cash. It's how I declare it. If I have a small business, mm-hmm. it's now starting in 1986. It's advantageous and for tax reasons to ha- call that income rather than corporate profit and take it in the form of capital. So the labor share artificially rises in the 80s. Right, but this you should see it in capital gains a bit later because you know when you have a lot of retained earnings within your corporation, you know, at some at some point you will you will want to get uh, to cash capital gains out of that, and so we do take into account this through uh, capital gains, which is a big part of of, of, the, of the overall picture. So. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that the change in tax law do, do not matter for how people report income. Of course, it, it does matter. But uh, if anything, I think the overall trend uh, would look uh, bigger if we could take into account, uh, uh, you know, other uh, non-taxable uh, forms of, uh, of compensation. Uh, react to now, that demographic regard- point. Regarding the demographic point, yeah, I, I think you're, you're right that this can uh, contribute to rising inequality. Although, uh, you know, at the very top, this is not really what's, what's explaining the very big uh, rise in, in the top shares. And also, you know, we should not forget that when you had, a, uh, you know, when you have a married couple, uh, uh, you know, sometimes you have a lot of inequality within the family, uh, within, uh, so, and, and how money is allocated and, you know, who decides how to spend the money. And, and, and this is very complicated to, to look at, but there are studies uh, in, in developing countries and also in, in developed countries uh, showing that, uh, you know, if you really look at how the money is spent within households, uh, the poverty uh, rates and inequality uh, indexes uh, can look uh, very, very different. So in other words, uh, uh, you know, women uh, in, in married couples can be a lot more poorer than what it seems if you just divide by two uh, the income, because sometimes, you know, the division of power and, and the division sure. of uh, uh, how of... you decide how to spend the money is not exactly uh, equal. Uh, there, are a lot of households. Households. there are a lot of households in America, and they're living in the highest income areas with two high-earning doctors, lawyers. Uh, that's a very inc- that's an increasing phenomenon. And whether that gets them into the top 1%, certainly gets them into the I, top top 10. I agree. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Uh, one last point, then I'll let you close. Uh, you're very critical of Simon Kuznets, and I was disappointed to see that. I think he's pretty um, – I was surprised after reading your book to go back and read his 1955 article. He's pretty cautious. I think it's his followers who who implemented this Kuznets curve as a sort of inevitability that development and increases mm-hmm. in income mm-hmm. would lead to – a, a reduction in equality. Kuznets himself seems to be pretty um, agnostic on yeah, that. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I'm, I'm sorry if I seem uh, uh, excessively critical with Kuznets. I think in, in my introduction, I try to make clear that, you know, I have a lot of respect and admiration for Kuznets, who was first, you know, the first one to compute national accounts for the U.S., the first one to use income tax data to, to compute inequality series for the U.S., and in fact, for any country. And in a way, all, all what I've been doing is, is to, is to follow uh, these steps and all, all what I have in addition to Kuznets is more time, more data, more years, more countries. But but in terms of methodology, you know, I just I've just been following what he did. So, I, I, you know, I'm sorry if I if I sound excessively critical. I think the problem where was mostly his followers. You know, I think he is, he is indeed very cautious, including his, his 1955 article. Although in his 1953 book, he's even more cautious, and I think he 
could have been slightly more cautious in this 1955 article as well, but the problem, as you said, were really his followers. And I think also the Cold War uh, era, which, uh, uh, you know, everybody wanted to believe in happy ends yeah. uh, for capitalism and, and, and inequality dynamics and felt that, you know, if we say something bad about inequality under capitalism, uh, we are going to favor the Soviet Union. So, you know, at least today we don't have, uh, uh, you know... Uh, uh, this uh, this possible threat, and, and you know, I turn uh, 18 uh, the year of the fall of the Berlin Wall. I've never had any temptation with communism, and and so I think this is one of the reasons why it is possible to have a, a more quiet debate about inequality today than in the past. Although you know, sometimes uh, you know, some some people seem to react as if we were still in the Cold War. But uh, you know, I think mo most of the time it's possible to have. Uh, a more reasonable debate, and you know, I'm very glad that uh, that I had this opportunity to have this debate with you today. Well, some of Kuznets' followers extrapolated a trend incorrectly, and uh, I want to challenge you, and I'll let you close with this. Uh, you're very worried. You know, you point out correctly in the book and in our conversation that there are factors that work can work against this R greater than G, but you're generally pessimistic. So, if if that's correct, I want you to close this and tell us. Whether you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future and wh whether policy changes that you advocate might reverse this trend that you are worried about. Yes, I, I am a, actually a lot more optimistic than what uh, uh, some people uh, seem to believe. And, you know, I'm very sorry if some people feel uh, depressed after they read my book because this is not at all the way uh, I, I wrote it. And, no, in fact, the, I think there are lots of reasons to be optimistic. You know, for instance, you know, one good news coming from the book is that, you know, we've, we've never been as rich, you know, in terms of uh, net wealth. Uh, than we are today in developed countries. And, and, and we, we talk all the time about our public debt, but in fact, our private wealth as a fraction of GDP has increased a lot more than our public debt as a fraction of GDP. So our, our national wealth, the sum of private and public wealth, is actually higher than it has ever been. So our countries are rich. It is our governments that are poor, which is a problem, but, but it, it raises issues of organization and institution, but that can be addressed. So I, I, I think we can, we can do better. Uh, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not as pessimistic as what some people seem to believe regarding the possibility to have more fiscal coordination and, you know, a more uh, progressive tax system. I think uh, five years ago, uh, many people would have said that uh, bank secrecy uh, in Switzerland would be with us forever. And then it just took a few uh, uh, sanctions uh, from the U.S. government and Swiss banks uh, to make the Swiss government uh, change their mind and accept to go into uh, automatic uh, transmission of bank information. So this is only the beginning of the process, but I think this illustrates that proper sanctions, and, you know, they, of course, it's a bit weird that European countries were not able to solve the problem by their own and, and had to wait for U.S. sanctions, but, you know, I want to look at this episode in an optimistic manner, which is that... Uh, if we have a pragmatic uh, uh, approach to, to financial transparency and tax haven, we can make uh, progress. And to me, the next step is, uh, uh, you know, when we, we are going to have a, a transatlantic treaty between uh, the U.S. and the European Union and, and, and free trade, I think it's important to put more than, than uh, trade liberalization into this treaty. I think this is a unique opportunity to have uh, important steps in the direction of more financial transparency, 
euh, Automatic Transmission of Bank Information, euh, Global Registry for Financial Assets, Minimal Tax on Large Corporations, on Large Multinational Corporations. You know, we are putting 50% of the world GDP around the table. Uh, it's about one quarter for the US, one quarter for the European Union. So, you know, this is not a global uh, wealth tax. This is not uh, 100% of world GDP, but this is already 50% of world GDP. So if we cannot make progress in the direction of more financial transparency and more tax fairness, uh, I think, uh, you know, this will, be, this will be very sad because it's important to to have a balanced approach to globalization. Everybody can benefit from globalization, but we need to to have more uh, fiscal cooperation to ensure that everybody uh, pays their fair share. Otherwise, uh, you know, rising fraction of our public opinion will feel that globalization uh, is mostly working for uh, large uh, multinational corporations, top wellholders, uh, and, and it's not working for them. So, It's important to bring uh, fiscal and social justice uh, into the globalization process if we want to keep uh, broad support for uh, an open world economy. My guest today has been Thomas Piketty. Thomas, thank you for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.